Good morning, everyone, and welcome back for our next session. While the last few people take some time to go ahead and get their last beverage and come on in for the next sessions, I just want to thank on behalf of my genetics for everything that we've experienced as a first-time Silver sponsor. So thank you to Nicole and Samantha, all the extended team, board members, and to each of the exhibitors and attendees. This has been uh, an incredible, fruitful experience of which I'm sure that we'll be um, active more in the future. So let's go ahead and get started. So the original thought and title for this presentation was going to be broad strategies for medical cost reduction. And as the three of us began to synthesize our thoughts of ACOs and to really kind of ponder what some of the other presenters have talked about, beginning with Sean yesterday, we began to think about what makes ACOs powerful individually and collectively. And we all know that you have your own initiatives, you have your own providers, and you have your own sets of patients. So you have similarities, but you have great nuances and differences. And what we really wanted to optimize was to bring to the table that cost reduction strategies includes population health, and it includes resources and tools that providers can think about adapting and applying moving forward in different ACO models. So let's begin by stating that we've gone beyond broad strategies for medical cost reduction to think more clearly and calling it population health per patient strategies to achieve cost reduction. So my name is Janelle Ali-Dinar, and I have the pleasure of being Vice President of Population Health, which also incorporates rural and underserved and minority populations, as well as global health initiatives. And so I have the exciting work of working with ACOs and independent physician practices to really bring some unique experiences and streamline strategies and opportunities to optimize the best capabilities of your ACO. My background is as a healthcare CEO. I have a large healthcare system within Catholic Health Initiatives, uh, as well as public health and rural health. So I have a passion for what I do, and I hope that that extends forward. We also are joined by Michael Marcus and Fred Goldstein. Thanks a lot. Uh, I'm Fred Goldstein. I've kind of been all over the healthcare, so. Um, hospitals, HMOs, et cetera, and I'm going to talk a little more broadly. I don't care if you do a 30-day readmission program or you're doing a diabetes program or you're doing a drug medication adherence program and talk to you about some ideas I have around saving money. And the first thing to think about is this chart. Um, this is, is uh, by Don Berwick, and it essentially shows you where the growth in cost would be. And if you look at this bottom flat line here, this is we would match healthcare, the cost growth in GDP if none of this occurred, we'd be flat. You would essentially see any gro no growth in healthcare. So how many folks in here are with, a fl uh, with an ACO? And how many are with a data and analytics company that services an ACO or provides data and analytics? How many of your ACOs are looking at fraud and abuse? Oh, it doesn't occur in mine, right? We're in Florida, folks. <laughs> this is the Wild West, the grand bastion of healthcare fraud and abuse. 
So I would recommend you want a gimme, just go find the fraud and abuse in your own network and say no more. How many of you are looking at overtreatment of your providers? Right here. It's happening every day. These don't require disease management programs. They don't require population health. They just require looking at your own networks and saying what's going on in it. Many of the health plans do this. As an ACO, you should be doing this. These, this is gimmies. These are points. You could be two, three, five points below cost just by getting rid of that. So that's the first thing. Think about failures of care delivery. A poor provider in your network. Narrow the network. These are very simple tools that you can use and ideas. You can see that failures of care coordination, while it's something I really like and think about, not a big piece of it. So um, think about that. And then also, you know, administrative complexities are a bit tough, but I want you to think about this as you move to value-based care. If you do a bundled price, how hard is it to bill that? It's not. So there's a hospital in Cayman Islands I've visited a few times. We've been there with major benefits leaders from companies. We've been there with CMOs. We've been there with insurance agents and brokers. They do only bundled pricing. The entire billing department for the hospital is two employees because it's $13,100 for a hip, and who cares if they gave or didn't give an aspirin? It doesn't matter. So as you move to value-based care, look at your operations and say, do we need all those billing clerks or people to ensure that every line item sits in there because it's no longer relevant as long as your quality and outcomes are fine. So I'm going to get to a little bit of the next area. And you heard about this concept, and Dr. Howell talked about it, focusing on the top 5%. I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to tell you why no. That's not quite the right answer. And, um, and so start with this. This is some work by Dee Eddington, uh, University of Michigan. And Dee has looked at populations. He had a database of 2 million lives for 20 years. He had HRA data, lab and biometric data, claims data. And he came up with this concept of stratifying low, moderate, and high with 15 measures. And his measures were things like blood pressure, do they wear a seatbelt or not, um, do they drink, do they, uh, what's their BMI, uh, what's their cholesterol level, and there are 15 of these measures, and they're in a, a standard HRA, and you can find the uh, Eddington HRA, the one that was University of Michigan HRA, and what he found was this. If you had, say, a high risk for cholesterol, that gives you one high risk out of 15. Let's say you had high risk for cholesterol and you didn't wear your seatbelt. That gave you two high risks, and he then uh, risk-adjusted people and said, if you have zero to two high risks, you're a low-risk person. If you have three or four high risks, you're a moderate-risk person. And if you have four, more than four, so five plus to the 15, you're a high-risk person. And when he did that, he came up with these groups. The blue is the low-risk, the yellow is the moderate-risk, and the red are the high-risk. So it didn't matter what age category they were in. You could see he could bundle his risk and costs by those 15 measures. And you can see what it looked like. The, the white, actually, there is those who were non-participants. You didn't have data on it. He just had costs. So they fit somewhere in the, in, the, in the moderate range. But anyhow, what he found was for every risk I reduced, I could save $209 a person, essentially. But let me show you why this is important. This is a Markov chain analysis that essentially says low risk is this group, moderate risk is this group, and high risk is this group. And the blue 
I don't know, but I got to point the red out here. So the blue one is the, um, is, is the baseline, and the green is three years later. And I want you to look in particular at the high-risk group. There were 4,691 people who were high-risk at baseline, and three years later, there were 5,200 people that were high-risk. So the population moved to a sicker status. That's what happens. We age, we add risks. But what's interesting in there is you see that top 2,373, 50.6%? Those are the high-risk people at baseline who were high-risk at the end. And if you look at the green line coming down from that, you see 678 people, or 14.4%. Those people move from high risk to low risk with nothing happening. They just naturally, over themselves, got healthier. At the same time, 39% or 35%, or, or 1,640 went from high risk to moderate risk. They got healthier. So half those people got healthier without any intervention at all. Yet, so if you just focused on the high risk, half of them would have moved down just by themselves, but while you did that, 3.2% or almost 900 people went from low to high, and 1,961 people or 18.4% went from moderate to high. So they got worse and ended up in the high risk bucket three years later, and those were people you wouldn't have done anything for. You wouldn't have contacted them. So think about it this way, too. Some of your top 5% are car accidents. They're probably not getting in a car accident next year. It's the person who had a triple bypass. They've already incurred their expense, but if you don't get the next person who's about to have a triple bypass, you're going to have them in your bucket. So when you think about looking at risks, you really want to look at a population health program that manages everybody. Now, that's expensive but it doesn't have to be if you just set up the appropriate interventions just to keep up with lower moderate people or as other companies call the invisible risk or the rising risk and manage them as well. You need some way to look at those because what happens is um, picture a sink and you're flowing these people in with risk and you're draining it out the bottom but if you don't think about turning off the spigot you're still going to overflow the, the sink. And that's why you need to look at a much broader based program when you're managing populations than we do today. You can't just focus on the top 5%. There's some gimme there, but you've got to go broader. So let's talk about a program. This is a framework from the Population Health Alliance. Um, it's a trade association in DC. I was chair of the board of this group for a couple years. And they essentially did it this way. Identify your population. Is it everyone in your clinic? Is it your diabetics? Is it your uh, patients with COPD? Uh, is it a medication adherence issue? And assess them. What sort of assessment tools can you use? Well, you could do claims. You could do HRAs. You can do clinical risk adjustments. You can do readiness to change. You can put machine learning algorithms in there. And you can personalize it. Drop your personal medicine stuff in and say, I'm going to risk adjust these people based on their ability to respond to a genetic test for their drugs and then what you do is you stratify them like you saw here and once you've done that you put them into these buckets of low moderate or high risk and you have to engage them at the end of the day then you say okay I've engaged these people I now want to intervene what are your interventions are you gonna be calling them are you gonna be reminding them are you sending them a script reminder are you making sure they got transportation are you making sure the doctors ordered the right thing and in, at the end of the day you measure your outcomes and feed it back in so this is one simple way you can look at any program you develop 
and make sure it has the, all of the components necessary. One of the key things to think about when you're doing this is what's the impactable risk? There's all kinds of risks, but do you have something that can actually make a difference and impact that risk? And, uh, and I'll show you uh, some examples about that. One of them you can think about is genetic testing is up and coming, up and coming. Well, if you know you've got a genetic risk for Parkinson's, what do you do about it? There's nothing you can do today for it, so is that something worth looking at? It might be for a personal reason, but probably not for a clinical reason or for a program trying to improve quality and save costs. So on this framework, you see you can focus on the left, and you're seeing some programs. I want you to think about this, too. Get, at some point, you're going to have to get way out in front of this. People change health plans every couple years, but people don't move communities as rapidly. So that 10-year-old child who is obese, who's going to have diabetes in 10 years, may be in your risk pool when you're global capped. So it would help you to head that individual off and look at a DPP program or something like that, and that's why you're seeing the sprouting of some of these. But as, a, as an ACO, your risk tails are going to be a lot longer than a health plan's. I'm going to talk a little about knowing your data, and this is really important. You need to know what's driving your costs and the potential outcomes of your interventions that I just mentioned. So picture this. If you put a program in, not all your cost areas are going to go down. If you do one of these programs, which I'm recommending you do these kinds of things, you're going to increase costs. And if you don't have increase in certain areas, for example, you don't see flu shot costs go up or you don't see your medication costs go up because you've got adherence better, then your program's not working. Um, so I'm going to give you an example of this. This was a schizophrenia program I ran for the state of Colorado Medicaid. And we enrolled people with schizophrenia and medical comorbidities. And what we found was their adherence to atypical antipsychotics was low. They were filling about 23 days of medication a month. So we looked at a 90-day period and looked at their, how many fills they had. If you take 23 days a month and you multiply that by 12 or 7 days left, you get 84 days. They're missing three scripts a year on average. We moved that number through our program to 29-day fill rates. They were just about perfect. We saw our ER visits drop 54%. We saw our hospitalization rates drop 2%. Hey, we won. We did a great job. We dropped these measurements. We improved the quality. They were healthier. The program cost $125 a month. The savings were only $85 a month. We had miscalculated. We didn't think that the atypicals at $400 a month, when you increased adherence rates from 23 to 29 days, was essentially $1,200 per patient per year. So by not fully understanding the cost ramifications of the program, we did the right thing. We improved care, but we did not lower costs because the ER reductions and the offsets from the hospitalizations were not enough to offset the huge cost of the increase in adherence. So I would ask you, as you look at your programs too, don't make the mistake I did, which was the only measurement that mattered to the state of Colorado was cost savings. They said, you're right, your quality was up, your, the patients were better, they were happier, you met all the clinical metrics, but we only had one measure in the, in the, in the uh, contract, and that was you saved us money. And the program ended.
Um, so make sure when you're building these things, you look at that. And I'm just going to close with something here. Um, how many of you uh, know we've got a big obesity crisis in the United States? How many of you look at this and say, dang, look at that lazy American? Right? It's a lazy American. I did that for two years. It's typical. Dang, they're driving a car and walking their dog. And for two years, I did that with this slide. And I watched Julie Gerberding from the CDC do it with the same slide. And then I looked at the slide one day, and you said, I said, you know what? I'm wrong. What's missing in that picture? Sidewalks. There are no sidewalks. Number two, how do you know that's a safe neighborhood? Maybe it's not safe to walk around that community. How do you know the person in that vehicle didn't just have their knee done? You don't. And so when you look at problems to solve, make sure you understand what the problem is. And then secondly, is that a problem we should be asking the provider community to fix? Can the provider community even fix it? I don't think you're responsible for putting in sidewalks, parks, improving things like that. So make sure also as you're looking at programs that you're going to be responsible for through your ACO that they're actually areas you can impact versus maybe some other community group to do it. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Janelle. Thank you. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.